just, uh, I've got a number of uh, juicy questions. There's no shortage of material here. Thank you for those. Um, and I'm also aware that the, there was the invitation if anyone wanted to just ask something. Um, so I'll, have, I'll make some space for both of those. It will be useful for me. You don't have to commit to anything here. Um, but if you have some sense as the question you might quite possibly want to ask that you've brought with you, it will be useful for me to have some sense of how many of those are out there because if there's lots of them, that will mean how it'll affect how much I have to say about what I've got here. Um, and if there aren't too many, then we'll just see how that goes. But if you think you might have something you want to ask, um, and if you change your mind later, that's okay. But if you've already written it down and handed it in, wonderful. Okay, so that's my question. Your answer. And just to say with questions, particularly written questions, I'll check again later if there is anything that's come up while I'm speaking. Is the volume okay? The back? Yeah, good. With questions, sometimes it's not always clear what the underlying intention of the question is, and there might be lots of ways it could be responded to. So... uh, just acknowledging that I may not necessarily respond to the exact thing you might have had in mind, depending on you know, how I pick the question up, but I hope what comes is useful. And if in what I respond to your question you are left still with something of it, feel free to ask later. Um, and also I, I tend to, although Q&A is the standard form, what I tend to think of more as questions and responses. Um, answers are a funny thing. Um, but I'll, as I said, endeavour to respond to what I feel is relevant, useful or hopefully meant by the question. I've had a, just a couple of minutes to look at them quickly and put them into some sort of order. And so first question is concerning insight meditation. What is the advantage of meditating with a basic object, for instance the rising falling of the belly or the feet, Can you also practice without a basic object? And In brackets, I ask this because when I practice, in quotes, being aware of what is most clear, I'm not often aware of the basic object anymore. So in terms of what's the advantage of using a basic object or um, primary object, is another way we might talk, choosing, picking out a particular topic or area of one's experience to focus on, There's two or three different advantages or benefits from it, but just to say, it's not something we have to always stay with. In terms of benefits, primary benefit is to do with actually just steadying and stabilising the mind. And so particularly at the beginning of a retreat, or if we're wanting to focus on the development of calm, of samatha, we tend to simplify and focus the object that we're attending to. So the rise and fall of the breath or the contact of the foot with the ground, being very simple, being quite singular, allows the mind to settle steady and calm. And through that process, there's a, a deepening of, of stillness, of tranquility, of the capacity of the mind to be gathered in a more singular, focused and unfragmented way. Another advantage with it is that... Um, it allows us, as we take it from a, a more samatha orientation, a calming orientation, into a, 
inside orientation is one can begin to see the more refined, detailed particularities of the experience. Essentially, insight practice can go in a few different ways. Once there's some sense of stabilizing, steadying, mostly through focusing on a particular object or limited range of objects in that way, breathing being a classic um, way of doing that in our tradition, one can open the attention up, as this person describes, and just notice what stands out. And this is sometimes called, um, I think, not quite accurately, but sometimes called choiceless awareness. And this is a term Krishnamurti, I think, used. I don't know if he used it first, but he certainly popularised it. And it's basically talking about, rather than choiceless awareness, because I think... Awareness is inevitably choiceless. It's more precisely, to my mind, undirected attentiveness. So we're not directing our attention to this or to that. We're allowing whatever arises that draws the attention, that seems most clear or strong or predominant, allowing the attention to go there. And it's quite a natural, organic process and is usually most beneficial when there's some degree of calm and steadiness already. Otherwise, it's easy to kind of get lost in all the multiplicity of possible experiences. So that's one way one can go with practice, and just opening up to the the flow, the fluidity, the changing experiences, and being in touch with the sense of just knowing them, being mindful of, aware of, present with those different experiences. Or, alternately, one can continue to sustain the attention on a chosen or a particular field of experience, which might be, for instance, the breath. And this is, you know, some other meditation orientations would go this way, where one starts to notice the more refined and detailed particularity of the experience. And in that, the elements or the characteristics of the experience start to show themselves more clearly in terms of the way it changes, anicca, the way in which we can't really get hold of it because it's changing, because it's and it's not in our control, that even a very particular singular experience is changing. And not being in our control, we start to see that also it doesn't make sense to identify with the experience, to claim it as my breath. We just see it's breathing. It just goes on. So in that way, using a particular object offers a different, in a way, orientation for the insight process to open up and in that it's beneficial it's useful but it's not required in the sense that there's also a benefit and a value in that more open orientation where one is in a way highlighting just the fact of experience itself and the particular what it is that shows up one notices but it's more just resting in the noticing of and the the quality of awareness and mindfulness that receives each experience. And in that, there often isn't a basic object in that way. And so, as the person says, one might not be aware of it. That's fine. But what it is important there is that one is conscious of what one is aware of, noticing both the, whether it might be a sound, and then a thought, and then a sensation, then an image, then a a moment of breath and then some sense of silence or stillness or a quality of mind, of uplift or contraction. We might notice these momentary experiences one after another, but it is still important to connect with them clearly and consciously. 
And at other times what stands out is more just the sense of the noticing itself, the awareness itself, the quality of consciousness itself. And then that becomes the object. That becomes what we notice. So there's still a noticing, a connecting. But it can move in terms of what it is that we're noticing. And so in that way, in terms of when we talk about benefits, there's often benefits and limitations to any approach. And the the limitation in the open approach is that sometimes one can get a little bit lost or loose or soft and not quite aware that one is really not that present in it. And in the more focused orientation, there can easily be a sense of a tightness or a contraction or a sense of doing it and making it happen or measuring one's progress and the development of the technical side of it and that there can be a lot of self in that. So there's always a benefit and a limitation to any choice we might make in terms of technique. But the bottom line isn't really the technique. It's what, or where are we coming from in ourselves when we engage? And if we're interested in understanding what's happening here, then staying with a particular object or opening up to the field and flow of experience... It's all good. So I have two questions here. What is the importance of experiencing jhanas in meditation practice or, and I think I'm reading this correctly, is there love? Because the words is there were already written on the piece of paper, it appears, and they've just made use of them and added a heart after it. So I hope I'm understanding you correctly. And there's another question here. What, according to my understanding, is the importance relevance of states of absorption on the path? So this is a, a, uh, a topic of real interest, I think, at the moment for many people and has been for quite a while sort of resurfacing. And the, the history with jhanas with um, absorption is quite interesting. It's uh, something that the Buddha spoke a lot of in his classical teachings and in the story of his awakening and the journey to his awakening. He practiced and studied with teachers who taught him these forms of meditation in which one gathers and focuses the mind in a very particular and precise but open way in such a way as that the consciousness, the sense of what one is attending to actually turns on it, not on itself, but absorbs into itself, into the very qualities of consciousness itself and its potential within that. And so, in many times when the Buddha speaks about his awakening and about practice, he talks about entering into and sustaining these absorptions and then turning the mind toward insight. And classical understanding of the teachings for many, I would say, centuries in this tradition was articulated in terms of first of all develop the jhanas or absorptions, then turn to seeking insight and understanding. And the value, the power of concentration, of samatha, of absorption, is that the mind becomes very refined, very still, very clear, and is able to see with some considerable degree of penetration into the nature of experience, particularly to reveal and lay bare the characteristics of anicca anatta dukkha, of change, of non-self nature of things and of the inherent inability of experience to provide satisfaction. And as a secondary advantage and benefit, absorption provides what the Buddha talked about as a a pleasant abiding here and now. 
So uh, something that was blameless, that wasn't causing harm or damage to other or oneself, where there was a sense of well-being, of ease for the practitioner as, a, as an abiding place. And, you know, the Buddha, before his death, entered into and abided in absorption as a, as a place from which to kind of just steady himself before he came out to, according to the tradition, I don't know who recorded this because I guess he didn't speak about it, um, but that's how it's recorded. That was, you know, where he took his probably second to last moment and then the light went out, so to speak, or wherever it is that lights go. And there's been considerable debate over the years. So um, personal um, response for myself is that uh, my own experience and exploration of absorption has been um, not the primary area of development in my practice. It's something that I've had the encounter and exploration and took some time, quite some years ago now, to develop some of that territory. Um, wouldn't describe it as something I developed to the point of mastery, which is a possibility for, for practitioners. Um, it's really useful. It's very interesting. It's absolutely not essential. But if it's something you're interested in and feel moved to engage with, incredibly rich and beneficial. And fraught with a whole lot of ideas that float around in our communities about the territory. And I just want to touch on that briefly if I can. There's a little bit of historical perspective useful here. For a long time, this practice wasn't really available or taught to lay people because it was seen that there wasn't really much point practicing unless you could devote six, you know, at least three, maybe six, maybe 12 months or more to just developing absorption. When the mindset was everything flows from that, you've got to do this first. And for lay people, in a normal lay life, highly, it would be a rare individual who's able to do that in the context of a lay life. You need to come into a much more secluded and protected environment. And in the, uh, I think it was probably the 60s, the Mahasi Sayadaw and one or two others started exploring the possibility that deep insight could arise through meditation practice that wasn't founded on development of jhana, of insight, based on a mind that's simply able to be stable with the changing experience rather than absorbed in an experience. And out of that came the retreat form that we're practicing here, amongst other things. The idea that, oh, actually, you don't need to spend six months training in this very particular way, or 12 months, or several years, or whatever. You can actually do that. You can actually quiet the mind sufficiently to get some very profound and transformative insight without developing jhana. This was a radical thing. It's really made a, a shift. And suddenly, oh, actually, you can do this for a month or a few months or even a week or two weeks, and it's really beneficial. It wasn't the case before. And that's had a lot to do with how it's become available in the West as a lay predominantly lay-oriented practice rather than requiring anyone to become a monastic to, to follow it. And uh, other teachers also, Ajahn Chah in Thailand, likewise, he wasn't so much talking in that language, but um, nonetheless very clear sort of indication that you don't need to develop those kind of absorptions, even though his teacher and himself had done a lot of that practice. Um, so the interesting thing with it has then been that for a lot of teachers and in some Western traditions, including particularly the tradition of uh, the Mahasi Sayadaw, there's been a certain sort of don't go there 
This is scary, dangerous, bad. Don't go and do that practice. It's not good for you. And the Buddha clearly spoke about the development of insight based on the attainment of absorption and the development of liberating insight without that. And he talked about those liberated by concentration and insight and those liberated by just uh, simple insight, direct insight. So both paths are valid and acknowledged in the Buddha's time. And so the last thing I'd say, that tendency at times, in our, it's become very, there's a lot of interest in it in, in the West at the moment, which is, you know, I think, fine and good to see. In the traditional teachings, there's a lot of speaking about the dangers of getting attached to absorption or to the jhana practice. It's such a pleasurable, delightful and creates such a sense of well-being that it's very easy to get hold of that in a certain way. And often there will be something of a debate between the, the two places of, oh, no, no, you really can't practice without doing this. What are you talking about? Or, oh, come on, you guys are just attached to your pleasant experiences. You know, get out of here. This is about non-attachment. Just to kind of parody it a little bit. Um, and for myself, one of the important perspectives that I've come to in looking at this is that because what you'll hear from any teacher and practitioner of, of, of absorption is, yeah, it's very pleasurable, but one doesn't get attached to the pleasure because there's actually a lot of stillness of mind and there's so much sense of well-being one doesn't really need to take hold of it. Now, that may or may not be true. I don't know if the real... Personally, my sense is the real issue with absorption in terms of attachment, is not that we get attached, or there's a risk of getting attached to the pleasurableness of it, but because absorption has the effect of temporarily suppressing the hindrances completely, it doesn't uproot the tendencies to greed, hatred or delusion, but it suppresses them completely. In the deeper states of absorption, it's like the mind is free of suffering, of defilement. Although one notices as the, one progressively deepens the absorptions, the one that feels very rich and full and delightful, as one enters the deeper one, the previous one feels a little bit sort of coarse in relationship. And one sees there's that, still that tendency of we can always look for something better than what we've got, even if what we've got is pretty good. Um, so there's that. But because of that, very powerful, that's part of why it's powerful in supporting insight, but because of the uproot, sorry, the, in a way, the suppression of the hindrances in, in absorption, and to some extent in the consciousness after it comes out of absorption, it's easy to start to imagine that one has actually uprooted those defilements. And to my understanding, my perspective on this is the issue with attachment is to, to do with an attachment of an identity of I've actually attained liberation or a greater degree of liberation than is actually real for the person. And that's the risk. And so I say that just in the fullness of a response to the topic. It's something that I was fascinated to read about um, Ajahn, or Ajahn Mahabur, who's uh, probably the one of the senior most respected teachers alive still in Thailand, who was a contemporary of Ajahn Chah, and um, both of whom were students of Ajahn Mun, who 
was a, a fierce old character who was credited with, in a way, rejuvenating the tradition in Thailand to a large degree, in a similar way as uh, Mahasi Sayadaw in, in Burma. And uh, that's one of the things that in his uh, Mahabur's biography of Ajahn Mun, he speaks about how both he and Ajahn Chah got stuck in that place for a while, essentially, of having developed absorption and believed they'd attained liberation. And of course, if you haven't, then that's a real problem. So um, that's quite a bit on absorption, I guess. Um, I hope that's useful in those terms. If it's something that you're interested and drawn to explore, it's great. It's really interesting and useful. And it bears bringing some wisdom with you in the journey. And uh, that's really, I think, what's important there. And if that's not something or a direction you're drawn to, then profound and transforming insight is not dependent upon those states, or any state ultimately, in fact. Okay, so I just want to stop there and see if anyone, before I pick up the next pieces, has, in response to that or what I touched already, got any questions? And it's really fine if you don't, but I'm just making the space if it's there. Okay, good. So, could you please say some words about wise communication, this being such a big part of our lives, and uh, so that it is true, useful, and timely, which is what the Buddha suggested we should uh, use as the, the, the benchmarks for wise speech. Most of all, how to stay present and mindful, especially if it gets challenging. I'm sure we'd all like to know. Um, it's hard, isn't it, staying mindful and present when it gets challenging. That's by definition. Um, you know, if it wasn't getting challenging, we wouldn't need any support and guidance with it. I won't say too much on this because we're in the midst of a silent retreat and there isn't much opportunity to practice with the territory. Beyond saying, stop and pause before you act, this is really something the Buddha asked or suggested as a way of engaging with any form of action, whether thought, speech, or mind. And they're the three fields of action. Sorry, thought, speech, or body. Um, to just pause and notice, if we can, where am I coming from? What's the intentionality? What's the movement? Any action is preceded by some form of intention, conscious or otherwise. And what's most important in terms of Dharma teaching and practice is being as aware as we're able of where we're coming from, what the intention is. That is the seed in terms of karma and the process of the seed that leads to the fruit, which is the result of karma, karma vipaka. And uh, so looking to see, am I coming from a place where my intention is wholesome? Am I coming from a place where my intention is kindly? We talk about not being harsh in our speech. So kindly. And... Um, 
Is it true to the best of our knowledge? And if it's not being willing to acknowledge, well, I'm not sure if it's absolutely so, what I'm saying. And is it useful? This is a really interesting and key piece of what the Buddha had. He didn't say, just tell everyone what's true. You know? I know what's true about you, and I've got to tell you. It's, it's my practice, you know, a common issue we encounter. Um, it's like, okay, it might be true, but is it useful? So the benchmark is always, is this contributing to well-being, to the end of suffering, to the healing of division, to the revealing of truth, rather than the generating of hurt, of pain, of confusion, of suffering? That doesn't mean that sometimes we might not say something that causes another pain, because it is true and it needs to be said, either our truth or a situation we see that we're concerned about. And essentially, what the Buddha said about any action in terms of is it useful, is it wholesome, is, okay, if you think before, if you're not sure, but in engaging in it, you just check in and see, does it seem like it's most likely going to be useful, helpful, wholesome? Okay, engage. If it doesn't seem like that, well, don't do it. Simple. If it does seem like the balance is that it's going to be useful, begin. But as you begin, pay attention and notice, does this appear to be useful, helpful, wholesome, beneficial? If so, continue. If not, stop. Say, whoops, actually this isn't useful. Start a conversation, you're talking, you're always, oh dear, okay, actually, no, this isn't the time or the place or the topic. We can just stop sometimes and say, actually, no, maybe can we come back to this? Because we realise that what's happening isn't helpful. But if it is, continue. And then having completed the action, whether it's speaking or anything else, the Buddha said, okay, so stop, take a moment, reflect. Was that useful? In hindsight, you can see it more clearly. Oh, yeah, that was useful. Good. Okay, file that for... Okay, in this kind of context, seems like I had a reasonably good sense of what was helpful and it worked. Or, whoopsie, that wasn't so useful not about then, oh, I failed, I've done it wrong, woe is me, or, you know. It's more like, oh, actually, no, it wasn't so useful. So one might need to say sorry to oneself or someone else, depending for whom it wasn't useful. But one also says, okay, actually, that wasn't useful. That's not a path to follow. That way or orientation or approach in expressing what I did wasn't helpful. It doesn't matter if it was true, it wasn't helpful. And so don't do that again. And I think it's a really useful formula because it takes the process as one of a learning journey rather than of getting it right or getting it wrong. And that applies to speech as much as any other action. And speech is for most of us really hard to give that space to. We can feel pulled and drawn and compelled by the momentum of our mind. So often what's helpful with speech is actually Exactly what we're doing here, getting to see what our mind does, getting familiar with it. So we're not so entranced, intoxicated or um, overwhelmed by its momentum. And so one is getting to know our minds, taking time like this. A lot of what we're looking at in the thinking mind is simply the verbal activity of mind that takes form in speech, but is equally taking form in thought. Being aware of being aware of the intention behind it. Is it coming from a place of greed, of hatred, of confusion, delusion? Or is it coming from a place of of kindliness, of care, of friendliness, of generosity, of curiosity, of interest, of a wish and aspiration for well-being for others and oneself? 
taking care of noticing that intentionality so far as one can. And as a, as a last suggestion, bring your attention into your body and feel what's happening here. Because this is where you'll get a lot of information about that. And that's also why we practice being in our body, so that we can be there when we need to engage, rather than depart into our mental activities. And it does get challenging, and sometimes it stays challenging, but that's the nature of practice, really. We can learn to be more and more awake in the midst of communication. And there are forms and practices that uh, support that more. The uh, sort of recently uh, developing practice of insight dialogue, which I haven't practiced myself, uh, seems to offer some real opportunities for that. And there are other forms of inquiry and exploration used within other traditions, and sometimes in this, where we consciously, reflectively engage with that verbal function, get to know it more skillfully. The next question, while the heating is on, etc., should this concern us? Is the Dharma in the 21st century in the West going to be about personal salvation only or the salvation of all beings? Which direction do you see us going in this and will it be a united voice from the Buddhist community? So that's a big question. Obviously pointing to the heating, well, is, how is this affecting our planet? We could, we could be reflecting on that, importantly so. I mean... At Guy House, recently we've converted the heating of the main house to a, a wood chip boiler. So in that sense, it's carbon neutral, although I'm not actually sure if this part of the house is connected up to that. The meditation hall, since it's the, um, might still be running on the old system on an oil boiler. I don't actually know. But most of the house isn't. Is the Dharma in the 21st century going to be personal or universal? Well, you know... I wish I knew. But uh, if for you this is important, then you can make it that your practice isn't just for personal salvation. I can't speak on behalf of really anyone else. I know my interest is... I mean, to me, the, the idea of personal salvation is, is a fantasy anyway. There's, there's no individual separate self that can get liberated free of everything else that isn't. The only way that liberation is genuinely, truly transformative at all levels is that it includes everything, everyone, and all of life. Anything less than that in one's vision is a vision based on a, uh, a sense of individuality which is ultimately dissolved in the practice. And uh, as Trungpa Rinpoche once said, you know, enlightenment is a great disappointment for the self. <laughs> Beyond the limitation and the contracted sense of self, the vision of liberation inevitably must include all of life and a sensitivity and a care and a respect for all of life. And whether there will be a a united voice from the the Buddhist community, I doubt it. I haven't heard one yet. But um, at the same time, there may be a lot of unity within the voices, a united voice or unity within the voices. The latter is quite possible. There's certainly plenty of that, equally as there are you know, other voices that might speak of other things. But it's also important, I think, to notice or to reflect on the way in which p- 
people might express very differently a similar sense. For some, going out and engaging in very direct action and communication and addressing in a very you know, a worldly, engaged, oriented way the issues of our time is their practice and beautiful, wonderful, important and well done to those people. And for other people, the looking very deeply into the heart of their being at the roots and the power and the grip that greed, hatred and delusion have in a human heart is equally a profound and powerful contribution to the transformation of consciousness and our planet and this whole existence of which we are part. And I think we have to be careful about, uh, again, judging one as the real path and the other as not. All those parts have their place. And if, again, we understand ourselves as something interconnected, as not separate, then of course it makes sense that some parts of us are engaged in certain things. While our hands are busy out there doing things, our feet does something else, and you know, the belly is doing something else, and the heart is doing something else. Different, very different functions. You know, what my hand does and what my belly does. This thing grabs things mostly, and sometimes it pushes them away. That's what it does. This thing sort of, sort of basically contains a whole bunch of soup that slowly gurgles away into juice. You know, which one's more important? Which one's right? Without this one to put something in here, this one gets unemployed. But if this one wasn't working, this would pretty soon lose its ability to grab. So engagement and inner engagement, all part of the path. And if in the, in the image or the language of Shantideva, we were to conceive ourselves as rather than separate beings, but the, the limbs of embodied life, we might say, oh, okay, so there's bodies got a number of different functionalities going on. And maybe if we see that we're not in our wholeness giving sufficient attention in certain areas, that might be where we want to give our life to, or our time to, or more of it. And so then hopefully our practice, inner and outer, can be a contribution to both the liberation of our planet from exploitation and degradation of our people from and human beings and other beings from the from the sometimes tragic and painfully limited or exploited and oppressed conditions they experience we experience and equally to lib- liberate and to free our heart from the impact of of craving of greed of of hatred and of of the delusion of believe, believing that we are somehow separate And this comes to the next question, really. What is meant by the end of suffering? Well, essentially that. Classically, what the Buddha speaks about is the ending of greed, of hatred and delusion. That is the end of suffering. Suffering is that. And if we experience and really get to know greed or hatred as an experience, we see it's so much suffering in those experiences. And they're predicated, they're founded on that sense of selfness that is separate. And we can talk about investigating the sense of identity, of separate, isolated sort of-ness called self that's located here and disconnected from what we call there. Or we can explore the understanding of interconnectedness, of the interpenetrating, codependently arising or interdependently arising 
an originating phenomena of existence called life that we're part of, we can see it looking at it from the emptiness of self or the connectedness of all beings, of all life. Either of those, understanding that fully, deeply, profoundly, this is the liberation that the Buddha spoke of and in it the the urge to grasp, to resist life, to hold on to and to avoid life, that the Buddha speaks of is coming to a complete end. And this is, this is liberation, this is freedom. This is the potential for our hearts as human beings. Something remarkable, beautiful, powerful and possible that he, he spoke of. And the condition of heart and mind that is experienced in the absence of greed, in the absence of hatred, in the absence of delusion, this a lot is said about. And nothing is ever said about. Because all that's said about it in the end can't actually say it. And some people choose to say it and some people choose to not. Some traditions make a lot of language about it and some make none. And yet in the end it's the truth of it or not. Where there is suffering, we can attend to it to seek freedom, liberation. Where there is not, wonderful. Let that be known and shared so that the end of suffering that reveals itself as 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 a freedom, as a kindness, as a love and shared sense of connection and concern for well-being this is this is equally the end of suffering to be liberated from the illusion of separateness from the to be freed from the constriction of heart that limits the capacity of of love the inherent natural love that's there that is constrained by a, a delusion or confused perception of limited self or separate self that fails to see the interrelated, interconnected and ultimately indivisible nature of life. So it's something that as a question it's good to continue to have alive for us. What is meant by the end of suffering? We might have our sense of it and I hope you do. We can know the suffering that in just the dissolution of a moment of attachment we feel that suffering dissolve. And we know something in that moment of the end of suffering. Or a moment of just finding our heart open where it was closing. Or just still where it was busy. We know something of that. And that knowing, I think, leads us onwards. It's one of the epithets of the Dharma. It's really beautiful. The the Dharma. um, It's sort of spoken about, one of the the ways it's described is leading onwards to be known directly by the wise. It's like it calls us forth, it asks us, it invites us to to know for ourselves what this means. Whatever others might have said to us in the end, we need to know for ourselves what this is and we can. And that's really what this practice offers us this teaching and tradition and this not just this practice and teaching and tradition this very human existence offers us this above all things
And there are, we could say, levels or dimensionalities of that in which one can understand the truth of this and know it very deeply and profoundly in a transformative way and still recognise that there are ways in which you can extend further and more in that sense of ultimately touching all of life. So the last question, and I think I've just run out of time, so it'll have to be quick. Um, it's kind of relevant to this. Why is talking about one's awakening experience a sort of taboo subject in the insight tradition? I've only heard one teach teacher sp- speak about this. Why is this? So... Um, There's a lot of potential for taking our experience and attaching to it an idea of self, taking even liberation and uh, claiming it as a personal attainment. In traditions where this is more commonly done, very much the the teacher is sort of set up as the guru and the the all-knowing, infallible, wonderful, perfectly enlightened, complete and finished with no more blemishes. And that's certainly how one talks about the Buddha, which, for me, it's great. The Buddha can do that because he's, at this point, you know, he's not going to cause any trouble from that place. (laughs) Most human beings, if they in themselves start to believe that there's absolutely nothing left to look at, or if their students start to believe there's absolutely nothing left to look at, the history, the track record is lots of problems. Because one needs to keep looking. There is no place one gets to stop here. One of my teachers used to say, no enlightened retirement. Attractive an idea as it is. And so the idea of claiming personally um, the attainment of awakening has a benefit because it can be really inspiring because as human beings and teachers and practitioners, there is the truth of awakening and the deepening of that wakefulness in profound and liberating ways to speak about. And yet the Buddha said, actually, don't speak about your attainments in a casual way or except really with your teacher that's what that's what the buddha suggested and in fact for the monks and the nuns in the order of the theravada tradition at least and maybe the others too to either claim falsely or to claim attainments in front of lay people was a very serious offense to claim falsely you'll be excluded from the tradition you you, you get thrown out for falsely claiming you've got more enlightened than you are so people mostly just tend to sort of subtly suggest that if they want to give that kind of communication rather than... And I think there's a good question for, you know, the importance of being able to... or a question to be raised around the, the loss or the limitation, if that isn't spoken about, to balance against the dangers of how it can be misheld and misheard and misused, if it is. But that's kind of why it is like this in this tradition. Um, And in any event, there's a little bit of a sort of very strong tendency if we talk about experience to put it in the camp of self. And so one needs to be very aware of that in the territory. And yet to also be very aware of the, the genuine awakening that through women and men, through the generations of practitioners such as ourselves from the time of the Buddha to this day, that awakening is something very real and alive. 
And the Buddha said in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta that uh, if one should practice this practice for seven months, one pretty well guaranteed awakening. Either completely finished, done, or just a little bit more to tidy up at the end. He said not just seven months, even seven weeks would do it. He said not just seven weeks, even seven days. If we were to really practice wholeheartedly, awakening, pretty much guaranteed, he said. And I think there's seven days left on the retreat, so... (laughs) Here we are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.